Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Okay, Jonesy on the pod, mate. Great to see you and thanks for jumping on. How are you? Good, thanks, Rusty. Yep, mate. Really, uh, really excited, mate, for a good chat. Yeah, me too. Uh, Fletch, um, you haven't. I, 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 I don't know if you met Fletch, but uh, Fletch, Fletch is getting really annoyed with me talking about your lockdown webinar because it was definitely the one that got me thinking the most. Um, and I've been on a lot of webinars, so so thanks for that. And well, let's let's get into it. What uh, what's what's brought you to to this point where you're sat in your offices in Dunedin speaking to me? Sat in my spare bedroom in Bristol. Yeah, mate, it's it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a journey, I guess, as as anyone has in their career, mate. So um, I was actually uh, trying to play code, and uh, and I was a bit chalky in the bones, mate. So I um, I, I did a bit of study at the same time, and uh, I was actually teaching at secondary school where I got a phone call. I had a pretty young secondary teacher, but but asked to to see if I could help out the South and Stags, which and and then was called the the MPC or the National Provincial Championship in New Zealand, and I actually went from uh, trying to make the team and being in their training squad as a, a sort of a 24, 25-year-old to the next year being their S&C coach because um, it's one of the few people that are, had, I guess, the, the little bit of experience in that area. So I was really fortunate, mate, to be given a, uh, an opportunity down there. And um, they said, look, we can only give you a one-year deal, mate, because you're, you're not proven. Um, and I was, I was there for uh, sort of four and a half, five years, Rusty. And um, we actually enjoyed a really good time there, mate. Um, yeah, we won the uh, the Rand Privy Shield a couple of times, mate, which was was pretty special. Um, and then yeah, the the team actually uh, really really performed, mate. So that was a really awesome introduction to me. It was my home province, um, a team that you're passionate about and loved, and you know worked with some really good coaches early on who were really honest. So I think that was uh, was one of the best places, mate, to start is when people aren't afraid to to tell you exactly how it is, both players and coaches. Um, so there was a fair bit of resilience gained in uh, in that first role. And um and from there, mate, yeah, uh, a couple of years with New Zealand under twenties uh, for two of their World Cups. Um, so again, mate, uh, was so fortunate and and honoured and privileged, mate, to to represent your country in in that space. Uh, worked with some great coaches um, and learned a lot from from getting alongside them and, and picking their brains. Um, and then, as a lot of young Kiwis, the uh, the UK beckoned and and wanting to do an OE and see a bit of the world. So um, after the second stint with the twenties. Um, spent a bit of time uh, living in London and, and travelling the world, um, which was just mate, sort of a, a bit of a break. And then, um, yeah, ended up arriving home, asked to come home and, and worked for uh, an organisation here called uh, High Performance Sport New Zealand, which is yeah, sort of our government agency that, that 
delivers and funds our uh, our Olympics programs and and different team sports and things. So um, yeah, became heavily involved in netball um, and and worked my way up through the organisation there. And then, mate, probably what uh, what kicked things off is um, was really enjoying that team sport was going well. But I'd been with with netball for about four years or so, and I assisted the Highlanders in, in two fifteen uh, when they won the Super Rugby Championship and. Um, Actually had a full time job, mate, but they they were out of the same building, so um, yeah, got uh, got in there, mate, and, and just loved sort of being back involved with the rugby and and realised that you know that was really sort of probably where the passion was still, which is where I started, and and was fortunate enough the next year, mate, uh, Jamie Joseph uh, walked down the the corridor because um, as I say we worked in the same building, and um, yeah, he was like uh, Jonesy, do you wanna do you wanna come to Japan and. Uh, I was like, oh, okay. So we hadn't really worked together, to be fair, because I was only really a gym junkie for uh, for them in 215. Um, so yeah, we had a couple of good chats made around whether we think we could be a bit of a team and uh, shared our philosophies. And and then, mate, yeah, three and a half years in uh, in Japan. And um, yeah, awesome, uh, awesome time sort of really learning and growing and, and being a real different coach and a different culture. Um, and then, yeah, mate, post-World Cup back here to the to the Highlanders and Super Rugby based in in old little Dunedin, New Zealand again, which which was home prior to leaving, mate. So it's been a nice sort of circle, really. Nice. So much in that. Um, and a 10.600-metre man, which is uh, yeah. which is pretty decent. It competed in a World Championships, a World Junior Championships at, at sprinting. What was, I mean, we chatted earlier and you said that was pretty useful for you. Why? What were you thinking about? Uh, I think, mate, just the fact that, you know, you I think I had to apply pretty much every little bit of my training ability to to get to where I, I was. Like, I mean, obviously there was a bit of talent, but mate, it was actually probably the way I trained. I think, I think there's probably plenty of people around that were probably a little bit more gifted and faster than I was. But uh, one was I, I stuck with it for a bit um, when other people sort of give up and go to other sports. But, but the other side, mate, was um, I had a really good coach. Actually, he was a freezing worker and uh, a meat worker, but he loved athletics. And back in the days of dial-up internet, he would... Uh, You'd find a few things online, mate, but you started understanding plyometrics and, and power transfer and, and you sort of, you understood periodization and, and different training volumes and things. And I think that, mate, sort of really set me up for an interest in, in the body and how the body works, but also around, you know, how you, how you can manipulate those variables. So I think, mate, that was a, it was a pretty cool place to start. One of the things from your lockdown talk you spoke about, and you already mentioned a couple of coaches, was like, your relationship with the coaches. So I particularly remember you talking about Tony Brown and how you'd worked on having a really good relationship with him so that it could help with performance. Um, you know, I mean, for anyone, and it's something to consider if you're an analyst or, you know, an S&C or a psychologist or what's the, what's the stuff you're thinking about around that and that kind of relationship with the coaches? Uh, I think, I think first and foremost, like, um, you, you just want to find out what they need from rugby. Like, um, you know, you lose the chip on your shoulder pretty early in this in this job and, and you realise that it's about rugby execution or netball or whatever sport you might be working in. So first and foremost with Jamie, uh, you know, he shared his vision um, for, for our three years with Japan. And, um, you know, we never wavered from that vision. So the great thing was, is I had really great clarity around where, you know, he wanted to take the team and uh, and you brought Tony on board. So... Um, I had two amazing coaches with Jamie was uh, around uh, accountability and, and that's something that he taught me a lot around, you know, um, having athletes accountable to, you know, to standards from everything from recovery to, to on-field performance and how we educate and deliver on that. Um, and then uh, he and Brownie would come up with the game plan and then Tony and I would sort of work a little bit more on the training specifics. 
you had Jamie was great around um, the environment, setting the environment, the professionalism and, and things. And, and uh, himself, as well as Tony, we would talk around what metrics we're looking at, you know, within the, the style of play. So, so Tony would say, well, attacking-wise, um, this is the way we intend to play. Uh, so Rusty, we've spoken about, you know, the ball and play, for instance. Um, we did a little bit of research. Um, Brown had looked into it, and, and I looked into it as well after he started speaking to me about it. And with uh, the Sunwolves Japan uh, Super Rugby side and, and the Japan national team, is if the ball was in play for a little bit longer, we realised that we had a little bit more success or we were in the game for a little bit longer. So understanding what the coaches required before you even start your own planning, you know, was, was really key for me because they're the guys that um, if you can work closely with them, you know, so much of your issue with athletes is solved because you just use their language. You know, you use the coach's language rather than S&C language. So, you know, Jamie's talking about work rate of a player. So I start talking around, you know, the, they're not folding to, around the ruck fast enough. Their line speed's poor. Their kick chase isn't good enough. You know, they're not repositioning quickly. So not once have you I mentioned... You've got the trails. You could coach. Yeah. Uh, mate, uh, good, at, good at spinning a yarn. I think Rusty's probably more than the last bud. But um, if, just I think if you really understand your coach's vision, whether you be an analyst, a medic, um, you know, because medical have to be on board with the style of resilience or, you know, the professionalism and everything. So... I think that uh, interdisciplinary approach of your whole management team with everybody having a really good understanding of, of um, you know, your team and what you're about is, is, is really crucial. So um, establishing relationships before you actually get too far in, I think, Rusty's is another really key thing as well. Um, and that's hats off to Jamie. He took me to Japan probably about three months before, you know, the, the real work started. And that was just a great time for him and I to get aligned and get to know each other and, and, and chew the fat and, and, and get to sort of be, um, you know, on more of a personal relationship. So when the acid came on, you know, you actually had a bit of a, a grounding there. Nice. I mean, that's a pretty decent piece of advice to speak the coach's language. They probably don't understand lots of your language and they're unlikely to adapt. So uh, yeah. well, well done you. So the metrics, if I recall, that you spoke about was that was ball in play. So you looked yeah. at it and said, you know, look, we. I actually think I read somewhere you were trying to get 50 minutes, but you're probably shooting for the moon at that point, but but certainly in excess of 40 minutes. And therefore, and, and then the other metric I remember, I think was around like, um, how many of your accelerations were high speed? And then, yes. um, and then what I also thought was, uh, I don't, well, A, it's two things that, it's probably easier for the players. It's quite easy to go, well, there's two things we, we need to consider but also the fact that it then informed your training. So if we're going to play high ball in play, then actually the coaches can't speak for seven, eight minutes. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was pretty much it, Rusty. So we, we had, uh, like I had analysts live coding for me, so we knew exactly where we were, ball in play, and we had GPS. But if you actually strip it back, it was really basic. So um, normal ball in play time is about a 35% work to rest ratio. So ball's in, the, you know, in play for about 35% and out for about 65, you know, on, on average. And um, so what we decided was, well, normal ball play is, is, you know, maybe anywhere between 34 to 38 minutes, the odd game a little bit higher. So we figured if we could at least train a few times at 40 or above, um, you know, then we were preparing for a higher end game and to get used to um, executing our skill set and our game plan at that intensity. But what we also did was without too much science is we just took out the rest and the recovery. So we changed that ratio and sort of flipped it around. So we would slowly build up because the players couldn't handle the intensity at the start. So we sort of aimed for about 40% ball um, ball and play ratio. Then we got to 50 and then to 60. And then as you say, mate, when we were sort of shooting for the moon in our, 
our last camp um, in Abashiti prior to the World Cup. Uh, we had three 40-minute um, ball and play trainings at about 70% work-rest ratio. So as you say, you know, the coaches are talking for a minute max, you know, and there's not a lot of breakdown time. Um, we didn't do a lot of set-piece um, resets and starts. It was just sort of, you know, keeping the clock running. So even without measuring your metrics, you've just changed your work-to-rest ratio, which means you're doing everything harder and at a higher intensity and higher rate. Nice. So, and, what, and what bikes next to the pitch, if I remember? Yeah, yeah. What bikes next to the pitch? If I if needed those, if they if they weren't catching it. And then, as you mentioned, the other one is, um, you know, GPS and science and sport and stuff these days is huge. And uh, you made a comment there before that if the coaches don't understand too much of it, you know, of my language, but that's actually a really key comment because if they don't, neither would the players. So generally, I'd be explaining something to the coaches, and if they're like, put that in our language, Jonesy, or you know, even simplify it further, or you know, the players need a clear understanding. So you mentioned the high intensity acceleration um, ratio that we use. So Rusty, you run out in the field, you make 200 accelerations total. And, you know, 150 of those are at our high intensity metric. You know, you've got a 75% ratio there. So I didn't know what was a good number until I went back and just reviewed what we were doing in test matches. And uh, early on in 216, we were quite low. We were around about, a, uh, on the metric we were using, we were sort of about 70 on average, so our target became 80, and then we realized that 80 was quite achievable, so then we actually had a benchmark of, of trying to achieve 90%. So um, players were just held accountable to that in a game, you know, in a ball game or, or in a training was, you know, you needed to be 90% of the time, and again, really simple language is that just meant you weren't walking. You know, you got up and you, you jogged to next position rather than, you know, you got up, walked for three or four steps, had a bit of a scan, or, you know, you, you dragged ass a bit. So we really simplified that really into exactly that. You know, it's your rugby work rate. Nice. <clears throat> How did the players, I mean, respond to that type of stuff? Um, I think really well. Initially, uh, they probably weren't so used to me sharing everything because every training, you know, training went up. So, you know, if you had four nines, they could just compare themselves against each other and, and see who was doing what and who was, you know, doing really well and who had a big load, who had a low load. So I think once they initially got the fact that that was just going to be a norm, that the information was there, then... No one could really argue with you if you ever said, look, you need to do top-ups or your work rate's poor. And, and it just helped support the coaches because if their work rate was poor in the game, they knew what to look at in terms of the metrics. And, you know, and that sort of would help with that as well. And a high work rate doesn't necessarily mean performance. You could, you could not perform your tackle, your ruck, clean out, your pass, whatever, once you're in the right position. But if you're not in the right position for a start, then, you know, you, you, you poke really. Yeah, like your, <clears throat> I think you described it as like, just getting from A to B in order to be able to perform the action. So yeah, yeah. actually, you know, at least we know that people are putting effort in to get into, you know, they've scanned and they've got into an appropriate position and then, and then hopefully the action follows that. Yeah. And then, so mate, like yeah. I think, you know, to really simplify an S&C's job in rugby is, is first and foremost is that the players are robust and resilient so they can actually train enough to become good rugby players. And about the closest that we get to affecting performance is, as you say, they need to be able to get to A to B at the level and speed required to execute the game plan. But I mean, the game plan and then the skill that they execute once they get to B, whether it be the pass, tackle, right, clean out, you know, whatever that might be, that's, that's then the coach's gig. But if they're not getting to A to B on time, you know, they're putting themselves under pressure. You know, if you're late to your tackle, poor position, you know, if you're late into the attacking line, you know, your pass execution might be poor, um, you know, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah, there was a, a pretty basic understanding for the players is, you know, we need you to get to, to A to B as best as possible. So whatever B is, you can execute. Nice. And I guess one of the out, outcomes of 
of doing that and also the speed at which you played the game is people probably get better at scanning because as time is taken away from them they've got to get some information pretty quickly to which yeah and, and as you say that relationship with the coach is great because you know they're saying look here's your video footage you've got up and you know you're, you're walking you can you can scan while you're jogging you don't need to walk to scan you know so you had coaches saying that you're sitting in the review hearing it so you know your message around work creators you know scan scan while you're running so again using that rugby terminology rather than science and s and c they just they understand without you know you're having to to educate them on metrics as much and, and a lot of other things so what was your relationship like with so let's go tony brown because he'd be the he'd be one of my kind of i get excited by him as a coach and the way he wants his teams to play what, yeah. uh, how was how was your relationship with tony uh, so I didn't, I didn't really know Tony at all. Um, again, so from from um, 2015 when I helped the Hollanders, as I say, I was just based in the gym. So I mean, apart from saying hello, I was in none of their planning, didn't really know his style. And then when Jamie brought him over, um, very quickly we had a couple of yarns and he said, well, this is what I want to do. How do you think you'll play and get us to go that way? So I said, look, I'm not too sure. Let's just, let's just you know, take a few, few chances to see how we go. And so you just sort of code his drills for him you know, find out what drills he liked and then you could give him feedback on the intensity of those drills. And some of his drills, regardless of my input, were already amazing in terms of really challenging a player's repeatability and, uh, you know, and, and playing um, unstructured footy, which was a big part of who he wanted to, to be and what we wanted to do. So we slowly grew. And I think he realised that what he could start um, doing was sort of sell me what he wanted and then sort of say, so you come up with a way to maybe measure that. Um, and, and give us the feedback and, and help us create the drills that, you know, put us in the right place. And so he sort of left the, the how and how much to me, and he would, he would quite often come up with, you know, the game or a, or a phase play or a modification himself, which was quite easy. And then the flip side of that was, I guess, with Jamie, if we're talking current with uh, Japan, uh, he was, um, he wanted to know how we can hold players accountable. And that's sort of where Rusty, there's so many metrics that aren't, um, I guess, replicable across all positions. You know, so some guys will get a lot of meters, some guys won't. But your acceleration ratio is based on, you know, your intent and your purpose every time you go to move somewhere. So with that and what we call a high-intensity effort rate, there are two basic metrics with um, a challenge from Jamie is we want to try to hold guys accountable to, to work rate. They were the sort of the two we could come up with. And we came up with a really basic formula where you could mash the two together. And that became how Brownie and I judged the intensity of his drills. We, we realized that, like all S&C and, and GPS data, if it was a three-minute drill or a six-minute drill, you knew roughly what work rate targets they should have for that time. And, you know, players would know that we were charging that and then, and then they get that feedback either live during training or, or afterwards. Nice. And then um, something you referenced there was kind of some of the individual stuff. I think you spoke about it. I think I might have asked you about, like, did you theme some stuff? But on top of this, there was also some individual possibility for players, wasn't there as well? I'm sure you talked about, like... <clears throat> presenting players with like, there's like, was it like a ninja warrior or something at the end of a match? Or yeah, yeah. And we, we've actually we've continued something similar this year with uh, with the Hollanders. But yeah, it was just based on. Um, so so Brownie mate, uh, he would come up with positive actions, you know, so how well they did in their rugby. And again, he worked with an analyst to come up with how a scoring system could work with that. Um, Jamie would get coded on their collisions and the quality of their collisions, and then I would look at work rate. And if you got a certain score of the three of those then yep, you were awarded a, uh, what we call a Katsumoto, which was, as you say, mate, like a, a Samurai Warrior. And, um, you know, we, we had a pretty high standard for that. So generally only celebrating maybe six, seven guys out of a, out of a game each week that were 
you know, relating that level, but we had it there as a bit of a pedestal to, to aim for and, and to acknowledge. Nice. How did the players react to that? Yeah, I think I think they looked at it pretty well. And, and because we were early in our development of it, you know, some of the smart players would start sort of picking holes in the, well, the fact that I've got a hold width the whole time means I might not have a high work rate. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking, because the reality yeah. of the game is that... Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yep. So you take Michael Leach, you know, smart man. He's like, his job was to hold, you know, hold the width for us for, for quite a long time. So therefore, you know, he was saying, well, my work rate won't be quite as high. And 100% that was the case. So what we do is, as you start, you know, as the more data you get, you make it a little bit more position specific. Um, but what, what we really used it for, Rusty, was to, to make the change. And once we'd made the change, um, which was sort of achieved, I guess, by PNC um, in 2019, sort of June, July, we actually dropped it after that because we, we had achieved the, the change in mindset that we needed to do. Our, our fitness testing scores were great. Our GPS metrics were where we wanted them to be. So it was just about, you know, putting the cream on the cake and, and, and putting that a little bit further, you know, with our final training camp. Nice, yeah. I mean, if you want to <clears throat> change some behaviours, measure it and just be careful of the unintended consequences like Michael Leach, who seems like he's quite intelligent, coming up and saying, well, hang on a second, there's a... There's a flaw in your in your algorithm, Jonesy. Yeah, um, but mate, you're just the same as everyone else. You just say, "Yeah, I'm human. Like you know, I make mistakes too." But at the moment, it's working great. So it helped me work on it. And, you know, let's just get better. You know, so uh, you just mate, you just front that and be honest and and get it better and, and continue to develop. You know. Yeah, talk you talk about mindset. You actually spoke a bit about like culture and the culture over there versus <clears throat> maybe the culture in New Zealand. What's what did you notice? Was this was there differences? Was that what were the similarities as well? Uh, in, in that particular environment, um, the Japanese are prepared to work all day. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not just their rugby players, it's, it's, it is their culture. You know, they're very loyal to, to their company or to their employee and they will work, you know, long hours and, and they're happy to do that day after day after day. And routine is, is fine for them. You know, a lot, of, a lot of players here in New Zealand, you know, they want variety, they want different games, they want different drill because, you know, they just, they feel they get a bit bored. Whereas the Japanese are prepared to, to do a little bit more you know, structure, they quite like structure um, and, and they don't mind working the long hours. But probably the shift we had to make was it wasn't keeping them at the training field all day. It was getting them to actually train at the intensity we wanted. So specifically for me, it was, you know, run, run actually as hard as I need you to run and lift as heavy as I need you to lift. And it actually took a, uh, took a good 18 months to two years for me to really get some traction there. And, and from a rugby sense, um, getting outside my lane here a wee bit, but like, I mean, our collision intensity and their ability to actually want to hurt each other at training and get better in the collision and the breakdown, you know, and that was Jamie's speciality of, of doing that. So um, when you've got two guys like Jamie, and as I say, Jamie was great at developing the culture and developing the expectation around performance and also leading that collision and contact area, the, the ability to be competitive in combat. And then um, the players believed in him for that and then and then I guess the, the Japanese players really believed in Brownie for the skills he was requiring and, and asking the boys to become proficient at from number one to number 15 on the paddock and then also they loved the game plan because they loved to attack so with Brownie having a really highly attack orientated focus for them that made it really quite easy I guess to start getting some traction because they had so much faith in those two coaches and then that's why very quickly you just start writing your SNC on the coattails of those those coaches' messages because then you know it looks it looks like you're all aligned in the same. Couple of, couple of things there. One is, <clears throat> I think, well, what you say, it often takes time to change some of these things, and people sometimes forget that. 
um, I'm still threatening to go on a diet and lose some weight. It's been more than 18 to 24 months, I can assure you. Um, and then the other thing was that I was curious about was like the, yeah, the, how much did they want the game to be structured versus Brownie's preference around the unstructured? Because what I also noticed was some really skillful people with low numbers. So your, your forwards were super, super, some of the most skillful players in the World Cup, quite frankly. Um, yeah. So, how, was, yeah. How, was, how was that battle or wasn't it a battle? No, it was a battle. It was a battle. And we actually, as, as coaches, we changed our approach. So um, we were lucky that we, we sort of had super to test out a lot of the players. Um, and, and we sort of noticed that we required, for the skill level we wanted for our game, we didn't have good enough skills. So we actually, we actually trained with a lot higher volume of time on feet. But a lot of that, as you say, might have been skills. The brownie might have been just snapping kicks at a line of, you know, props running at them. And they're learning to catch that snap kick and tip pass, you know, and, and throw gun balls behind another player. So there was a really high repetition and expectation that, yeah, it didn't matter if you're, you know, number one or number 15, that you had the ability to, to catch and pass and be a link person regardless. Um, and that was a little bit around our mentality around, we also, to, to execute skills, you need to be a great mover. And, and so really early on in the piece, we started um, getting a bit of a crossover of some landing mechanics and change of direction ability. And again, it didn't matter if you're a number one or number 15. Um, we worked really hard on your ability to, to be able to move, control, and, and step with your own body weight. Yeah, I love that. The fact that you wanted to be the best movers at the World Cup. <clears throat> and it got me thinking again. So um, what I would notice, and you might be like this, but I mean, I, I think the backs get more opportunities to become, you know, in open play, better movers. Because actually the forwards are often doing some jumping and some pushing. Um, did you kind of overdose the forwards around some of this stuff, or how did that work? Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to some of your injury prevention work. So, like you know, um, ACL rehab, for instance, involves a lot of you know jumping, landing, hopping, learning to control you know how how your knees and hips all work together. And so, um, I do something very similar where I just call it landing mechanics. Um, and what it sets you up really well for is you know if you're a big guy and you you know can squat 300 kilos, but you're only working a straight line then you're going to get caught out on defense, you know, if you're at T1 or T2, you know, someone steps you and you're not there or you need to change an angle going into contact and you can't because you're all momentum, you know, so you, you might um, struggle to get a clean ball placement or you never get that weak shoulder for gain line. So again, when we did all of our movement work, as a, as a prop, for instance, and you're going, why am I doing all these fancy drills where I'm hopping and balancing and stepping and catching and landing was exactly that. Well, look, you know, your feedback from the coach is that you hold up the side of the scrum, but apart from that, you know, you keep getting beaten in this position on defense, on attack, all you end up doing is just T-boning the guy because you don't have the ability, you know, late or under momentum to, to move to, to help set up a quick ball place or, or to get that game on. So we started with a lot of that um, every morning and uh, the coaches believed in it. So uh, I was really fortunate just to have little snaps of a warm-up and it's sort of rusty what I call um, a small dose response. So for the forwards, they never really had a full-on speed session with me. The backs would. One of their units a week, we would do sort of 20, 25 minutes of, of pure speed and, and change of direction work. Um, but the forwards, we were just uh, little micro doses. So it might be supersets in the gym. It could be the preparation exercises we did in the morning. It might be the primers they did for their unit or a team warm-up, uh, game day activation, um, captain's run primers. Sounds like a lot, but just as part of the warm-up, there was always a reactive footwork component or some way you know, be able to you know change your direction and do that so 
um, we got really good traction just by having that in the program as a real regular feature. And, and then without really trying to do a full agility session for the forwards, you maybe have still accumulated 60 minutes across the week, you know, for guys without, you know, taking away from their scrum or line out or their clean out, which is, is their bread and butter. Nice. And, and they would have barely noticed. <clears throat> and because you made it probably a little bit playful, that might have. So I think it's something else for coaches to consider. Often, you know, we see players taking the ball into contact and we're thinking, oh, and it's, and it's often a, a, almost like, a, well, it's a movement limitation and we're probably not doing that much to help them because actually if we start to look at our practices and how much of their week they're running in straight lines quite often, it's something you said earlier when we chatted was like, so, I mean, footwork and speed are your kind of, what gets you excited I'm, by the sounds of it as well as I mean you've learned a lot of rugby terminology I could write a playbook here as well which is good um, yeah. so so what have you noticed and obviously coming across from you know I'm working in other sports as well like netball so what have you noticed in rugby around that you think you know footwork and speed is, is it something we're missing is it something we're doing we could do better what's what's your thoughts around it well, as, a, as I guess, as you say, mate, as a guy that was, you know, grew up as a sprinter, you know, you're passionate about speed and it's, you know, it was something that, you know, we're, we also liked things that we're good at. So it was just something that I loved and I was passionate about. And But but they, they couldn't be too different, really, to be honest, Rusty. Like, I mean, top-end speed in rugby is great and there's some amazing guys out there that will score tries, but they've really got that ability. Whereas the average carry in rugby is 3.5 metres. So you're not having too many top-end speeds in 3.5 metres. So... You know, rugby is a real basic game of dominating the collision and the gain line. So that could be on a tackle defense. And your ability to accelerate your body, not just in a straight line, but in any direction, is key to performance. But I think what we often forget is, you know, when I came back, I guess, mate, um, I, I shouldn't talk about myself because everyone tells me I do it too often, mate, but it's a good for yarn is you come back from um, sprinting for years and you start playing footy. And 100%, mate, you'll, you'll gas everyone if you've got enough space. But there's guys with way better footwork and acceleration ability than I've got, you know. But yet I'd strip them over a 100-meter race. So, so I come back and it didn't matter that I could light up the running track, you know. There was guys that would still leave you for dead in the first few meters. And then if you didn't have time to catch them, they'd already got gain line or they'd passed and set up a try. So um, very early on, mate, you start realizing that it's, it's actually your stopping ability. So if you look at any great, any great athlete, whether it be a basketballer, a footballer, um, hockey player, your best players are probably some of the players that can actually stop as well and then re-accelerate and control their body weight. So that's, I guess, some of that landing mechanics and acceleration work is you do a lot of stopping and change of direction. As if you talk about netball, um, for those that know in netball and those that don't, you can't run with the ball in netball. So you come hearing in to grab a pass, mate. You've got to just hit the ground and stop, you know, and then you've got to make your pass and then you've got to go again. And that cutting and changing of direction, um, you know, takes a huge toll on their conditioning. And if you don't have the strength reserve, or the, the power and strength to stop yourself, you know, that's that's often where you'll get your fatigue, not just the fact you can't run a great yo-yo or a great, you know, bronco sort of thing. So, um, yeah, my passion, mate, just became about making sure guys could hop and bound to one side and back again. You know, they could go forward, but then stop and then re-go again. And they could twist and turn and just get, as you say, without really putting much of a focus of it. They just did these little movements, you know, and, and as you say, a bit of fun and competition, mate, I... I get excited like a little you know, kid at Christmas, mate, when I'm doing a speed session and I'm always smiling and I'm, and I'm trying to crack jokes that aren't funny and, and having a hell of a time. But that energy comes into the boys as well. And, and when they've finished the session, as you say, they don't feel like they've been at the track doing straight line sprints and being told how to have perfect mechanics. You drop in your little coaching as you need to. Um, but one of the key things I love is they say, mate, you never tell us more than four things. 
And I was like, no, I don't, because they're the four key things I'm looking for, you know, and it's around the, the ability to generate force well, you know, where your feet are in relation to your body, you know, are you too tall or you're low enough to generate, you know, generate power. And, and that's, um, as you say, you just get creative with fun ways, competitive ways where they just think they're having a race, but you're, you're priming them for what they need. Nice. You just triggered me on, uh, and, and we did a podcast with Boeing Kids and they've got all these little games and lots of them are jumping and landing. And, and there's one game called Bears in the Woods and I love it. It's such a good game, but it's, it's exactly the stuff you're talking about. And it probably takes me about a week to recover from doing it. Because yeah. it's just, so I'm fully into it and, I, and I'm doing movements that I'm not normally physically capable of, quite frankly. But because it's a game, I'm all in. Then I wake up the next day, I'm like, oh, my days. Yeah. That was tough. And then the other thing I thought about, and the guy who's, I think he's still beating the most defenders in the Premiership is a player called Zach Kilbriggy, who plays for Wasps. And Fletcher always talks about his ability to stop and go. So Fletcher, yeah. this guy's the best stop and goer in the league. Yeah. And he's beating people for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, mate, like, um, again, I, I don't um, want to harp back to, to the Japan thing too much, but I had an interview with, uh, I actually can't remember, someone from the UK, which, mate, was a bit of a blow away, you know, when you're a wee Kiwi from, from bottom of New Zealand, you know, that they're interested in what you're doing. But they sort of tried to say, oh, what did you do for Kotaro Matsushima and, and Kinki Fukuoka, who were our two wingers um, during the World Cup? And if you remember, you know, pretty amazing movers and great try scorers. And he was really interested to know what I did for their footwork. And I said, nothing. I said, these guys were amazing movers when I arrived. I said, so really all I tried to do for them was make them more robust because they were sort of a little bit injury prone. So, you know, that came down to, you know, they, they both had what I considered pretty poor condition for an outside back at international level. But they would dominate and score tries. But, you know, we wanted them to score more tries and dominate more often. So you just needed them to, to be able to have a higher work rate so they could have that gift and, and what they're amazing at. And, um, yep, they did all my landing mechanics and they did all my drills, but, mate, they're already awesome at them. So you didn't really have to coach them too much extra. It was just around making sure they did them so they were resilient to those movement patterns and, and ready to go, you know. So I sort of had to say to this guy, because he was ran out of questions after that, he thought I was going to be able to sort <laughs> a secret, uh, secret potion, mate, around how we did it. But um, they were both already great stoppers and movers. You know, and at times you can actually use them for demonstrations for, for your other athletes. And, you know, he can actually say, look, you know, watch his foot, you know, watch his, his patterning of his body here and how he does things. And, you know, each player's their own person and you get their ability better. But, mate, if you've got stars like that, you can use them for coaching. Nice. So what I'm hearing you say is you did none of it. You actually got the other players to do it. I'm, I'm only joking. But, yeah, yeah I mean, that's... Yeah. 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 Something else you mentioned that I was curious about. So you talk about, um, you know, you lose the chip pretty quickly, about honest stuff with coaches. What's been your kind of ouch moments as a as a coach over the years when have you gone oh wow i got that one wrong or um, that's a big oh, moment yeah yeah for me mate there's 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 been a few like um probably probably just learning to as an as a young really young snc mate i started in the professional era probably as a 25 year old which is is bloody young i think to start and you know being in a full-time paid role and responsible for athletes greater than yourself but it was learning to just to say um, you were wrong and, and not try and sell everybody with your, with your science or your programming because, you, you know, early on I was like, well, I know what I'm doing. If, if, if they're not doing it right or as coaches, you're not understanding that, you know, that's on you kind of thing was your mindset as a young, you know, the young professional and you think you're pretty hot and you, you know your stuff because you've been in your undergrad. But like any good learner, mate, you know, you actually, you realise you just learn so much more on the job and in life and by talking and asking and getting feedback. So, 
one really early on was was just um yeah a couple of couple of coaches mates uh would always take the piss but one day one of them made a comment when i actually admitted something was wrong and uh, he was a good friend and a hard case guy but he made such a scene and pretend to fall off his chair and he said mate that's the first time in three years i think i've ever heard you say you were wrong and uh <laughs> he was he was just doing what he normally did mate which was good banter and and, and down home mate is uh you know you're chopped off at the knees if you've got any sort of ego but it actually was quite cool because it resonated with me and thought shit you know I do have to still get better in that space, and and just being um, being prepared as a as an S and C to to sometimes take it on the chin, whether it's one hundred percent you or not. You know, you're you're just part of it, so you just have to listen, take it, and and move because there's actually no point trying to argue that because you're just going to add to whatever the issue is at the time. So that was an early learning, but then probably the other one for me, mate, was um, doing Super Rugby for the first time with the, with the Sunwolves and uh, and also doing Japan national team. Um, you know, for, for a year and a half, two years doing both of those, mate, was just uh, an enormous workload. And I probably got lost in the enormity of of the role and went away from some of the basic work, mate, just around something that was never a strength of mine, was just my detail and my, you know, my record keeping and and therefore accountability. Um, so as I say, so um, Jamie worked really hard with me, mate, on, on getting better in that space. And um, I really thank him, mate, because it really changed who I was as a coach. Like, I love a yarn, love the sound of my own voice, mate. And and love to tell a story and going to Japan where you, you couldn't really speak their language to, to have a great yarn and tell a good story. You had to use your, your numbers and your data to, to sort of prove your worth. Um, you know, I've come back, I think hopefully made a far greater coach because now I'm back in the, you know, the, the land of the native tongue, mate. I, I think I spent a whole lot less yarns and, and I think it's really helped grow me because, you know, it was such a, um, an area of development that, uh, that, you know, you had to overdo over there, I guess. So, yeah, the other one was when Jamie just said to me, look, mate, we've, you know, we've really sort of haven't got much traction. And he goes, I really need to put that asset on you because if we were holding these guys more accountable and had better records to do so, um, you know, it could be there. And and the straight thing for me, mate, was just, as I say, the enormity of the two roles and trying to trying to compete in that. So um, no excuses, no right or wrong. Just, mate, just was doing so much in a new environment and, and I lost one of the basic things we should always keep doing. Nice. Um, that's a cool story. The um, made me think about a couple of things. Well, one is definitely go and coach in a foreign land if you want to become a better coach. Definitely strips away lots of things that you've probably relied upon. That, yeah. And then the second one that I was definitely also thinking about. So also really tough for you because I'm. A, did did your missus and kids stay back in New Zealand? Or did they come with you and travel the world? No, the first year, mate, first year we, we juggled it, they stayed home. And uh, so I only had uh, the one daughter at that stage. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd not see them for three months or so. Yeah, um, at a time and it was it was tough. Uh, and then they did come and live the last two years in Japan with, with me. But in saying that, we were near. We You've never left. So, you know, they, they enjoyed a couple of years of, of the culture, mate. And, and it was, I certainly saw them a lot more I would have if they were back in New Zealand, for sure. Don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, quite often you're only seeing them for half a day a week or a day a week. And then... You know, if you're on a training camp in a different part of the country, you know, you're still gone for whatever time that was. So, um, but mate, it was amazing. Uh, my wife did a massive shout out to her, mate, if you give her a plug, I guess, on the podcast. But um, she did a massive stint of, you know, being courageous enough to take two young kids to another country and, and do a lot of it on her own. Um, a little bit different to the top league setup where you, you might have a few other foreign families all sort of living in and close by. You know, we were just there sort of, you know, on our own and in our area and things. But we loved it, to be fair, mate. The, the challenge was great, but we loved the culture and, and many things. And, you know, we loved what the kids gained from being there as well, which was awesome. Nice. It's an awesome country. Yeah. Yeah. No, amazing. Mate, the food is, I miss the food, mate, like I pine for it. You go <laughs> and have some Japanese here and, 
you know, they do the best, but it's just, no, no, not the same. Right, I'm with you 100%. Tokyo, oh my God, I love it. Um, the other thing you spoke about was like your basics, and it just goes back to, I'm intrigued by like your conversation with Jamie when you first met him about, so I think your basics might be, I mean, for me, it's like, well, what's my philosophy? What do I stand for type of stuff? And you, you said, I oh, mean, Jamie had our, our first conversation was around what our philosophies were. Um, I'm just curious about that conversation. I'm definitely curious about your philosophy. And I guess like, what's, you know, what are the chapters look like? Is it, is it, has it been a huge amount of change or actually you're pretty, you know, I'm still, still that, that sprinter from Southland. Mate, to, to be fair, um, Oh, I'll give you the actual analogies and, and, and chat I had with Jamie, but to answer the last part of your question, Rusty, was what I what what we started out doing in back in my very first years of Southland was um, big rocks, the two basic big rocks, be fit, be strong. Because if you're not fit and strong, it doesn't matter if you have all the X, X factor and flair, you know, yes, you might win the game on the odd occasion, you look magic when you strip a couple of guys with your footwork or, you know, you blow out three guys with that clean of the ruck. But if it's if it's too infrequent or you get injured and you can't stay on the paddock, you're no good to anybody. So what what I what I have I guess tried to do by making this thing of being better movers or more powerful is um is really I guess just been better at doing that by being um you know increases in technology but as I said like being more accountable and holding players accountable to their performance but doing that in a creative way where it's competitive. Um there's an education behind the why and the how because if a player understands that I'm doing power cleans because it means I'm going to smoke this guy if I've only got a metre and a half to accelerate into him. And it also means my structures are resilient to if I have to jump fast or sprint so I don't get injured. You know, their bind's good and, and you don't have to overcoach. Um, but the basic analogy, I guess, Rusty, and it came from, I guess, we talk about other sports, working in high-performance sport, a bit of a time away from rugby coming back. There's a couple of great power scientists that you speak to. Um, I actually spoke to a guy in the UK um, by the name of Michael Johnson who, who's done a bit of work with um, lots of teams over there. He's based with British Athletics at Loughborough. Was the latest guy to confirm that. And acceleration's um, your your rate of force development and how much you can you can do with that. So when I sat with Jamie, he said, "Well, you've got three years. What what's your plan?" And I said, "Well, Jake, I'm quite different to a lot of rugby guys. I'm not huge on hypertrophy." And I said, "You know, if, if you've got a, a lock that's 101 kilos and he's going to be your guy, yet we'll need to put some size on him. But as a team." If the Japanese are smaller, I don't want to go in there and stack on five or six kilos. And he said, you know, give me the why. And I said, well, the analogy I used, I actually had just these bullet casings in a, in a PowerPoint all about bullets. I don't really know much about hunting or bullets, mate, but it, the, the science made sense was, you know, two bullets that travel at the same speed and are the same weight do the same amount of damage. Now, you know, you can pack a whole lot more gunpowder into one to make that bullet, you know, bigger and, and travel faster. But that means you're, you're increasing the size of the casing which means you've then got to get, you know, the, the body strong at carrying that extra weight. And then you've got to get the capacity up, you know, to gain that extra weight. And then are you losing something else, which is your ability to fire the rapidness, you know, by gaining that weight. So generally athletes will get stronger and gain some lean muscle if you train them well anyway. So my analogy was, is what I prefer to do to increase the damage of those bullets is keep that bullet the same size, but improve its, its ability to, to fire faster with, you know, more power. And also then, I guess, a repeated ability to do that more often. So, you know, if I'm 86 kilos as a Japanese winger, marking Wasaki Naholo at 106, what does it matter if I get to 90? You know, I'm still giving away 14, 15 kilos. Is that, is that the option? Now, there's a lot of SNCs out there that would argue the opposite of that and say, no, there's, there's huge gains that can be made with increased, you know, 
momentum that gets with that mass. But for me, I actually said, well, our momentum is going to come from our, our ability to produce force and then our ability to produce force quickly. So really, basically, I said, Jamie, we have to have really strong casing, so we're going to have a really big emphasis on strength, particularly lower body strength. I wasn't too concerned around massive upper body numbers. You need to be strong enough so you don't get injured, but performance for me, I said, is going to come from a lower body strength. So a big emphasis was on increasing lower body strength. And then the other I said to him was, you know, we want to be able to fire that bullet again and again. So our rate of force development, how fast can we move to, to dominate that impact zone? So it doesn't matter if I'm 83 or, or 84 or 86 kilos. If I'm just moving into position faster and better, I'm carrying more momentum, which therefore I'm doing more damage. And then I said to, to Jamie that um, the flip side of that is, I guess you, you've got a, a single shot, semi-automatic or fully automatic. We want to get to the fully automatic where we can just keep firing that bullet, you know, the same, the same, the same, which comes to our capacity. And I said, that's pretty hard to achieve that. And if that's your game plan, it's pretty hard to achieve that if we spend all our time trying to get guys big. And if we get guys big, as I say, are we actually making them more robust? I don't think so. And that's still an opinion of mine. I believe if you increase someone's lower body strength ratio in relation to their body weight and transfer that into power, 100%, that's the most, um, it's, it's the biggest predictor of acceleration performance. Increase your, your body power to weight, not how fast you shift 60 kilos or 100 or 150, how fast you can shift your own body weight is the biggest predictor of acceleration. Yes, we need props that can handle force, and we need enough force to be um, protected. So as I say, mate, so really high lower body strength force ratio, get that working first, then make sure they can develop that force rapidly and then make sure there's a transfer from that onto the grass. So that's what we're talking about before with the landing mechanics, the speed sessions, make sure it's not just in a squat rack or how far they can jump in a straight line, make sure it's actually transferred then into specific movement. And, um, and over and fifty percent of the game, and, and over fifty percent because Japan would have the ball for long periods of time, is evasion as well. So it's actually yeah. getting your eighty-three kilograms to avoid the hollows, hundred and plus kilos, and you might have a few more kilos on and be less likely to avoid. Yeah, I think I remember someone someone would throw stats at me after the World Cup, and you know it's actually what we're trying to do with our, our Highlanders team here currently as well, to to a slightly different degree for a different competition, but. You know, uh, I think they said in 21 seconds we've been to, you know, inside the 15s three times in the opposite sides of the field, you know, just with the ability to swing the ball and come back. So you think about the reloading and repositioning that has to happen within that. You couldn't achieve that sort of um, volume of passing. And, and, mate, I'm not the, the rugby stats man at all, but what I have to listen for is um, how many tackles you're making in a game or how many passes you're making in a game. Some of these stats are starting to determine, you know, obviously... Uh, your attacking abilities and plays based on, on who your team is. So I have to have a bit of an understanding about that. And as you say, Brownie, um, what I love about him, a bit of a visionary in that space, he'll say, well, this is where I'm going to go with it. So I go, right here, mate, you're, you're that guy. So let me know what that looks like. He gives me a bit of the rugby now. I then go away and try and make sure his drills are doing what he says. Um, and if you've got a great analyst, which we have um, here currently, his, his name's Andy Watts. He's a, he's a Welsh guy. Um, he started with Cardiff Blues. Um, he was with us in Japan. He's here with the Hollanders. Yeah, he, he's amazing at his job as well. So if the two of us, which we try and do as often as possible, is get aligned on our performance days, the coaches are getting, you know, um, time between rucks, how many phases, you know, work to rest ratio. They're getting the, the the metrics of all that sort of stuff as well as the some of the rugby specific stuff. So it's a it's a pretty tidy wee package they get on the the performance of their training. And then we hold ourselves accountable, Rusty. We've spoken about the players a lot, but one of the reasons I also love using data, and that's what I said to Jamie. He goes, well, how do I know you're achieving it? 
And I said, well, if we're not getting stronger and faster and more powerful, then I'm failing. And I said, and if we're not doing that at the right time, which is just pre-test matches or pre-World you know, pre Cup, then I'm also failing. So, you know, we tested fitness regularly, we tested speed and power regularly, and, you know, that, that sort of helped us make sure that we were tracking in the right direction. Nice couple of things. One is all analysts are Welsh. You should know that. They all come from Wales, uh, almost all of them. And, and that's a brilliant point, actually. So often when we're talking about, like, a player, we're considering what happens when they have the ball or they're making a tackle. But actually, if you want to move the, the ball across from 15 to 15 or 15 back again, then you're off the ball work, you know, 97% of the game. You've got to be able to move, you know, if you've got an extra five, six kilos, you've got to be able to move that off the ball, backwards and forwards and left and right. And so that off the ball stuff is probably, look, we don't pay enough attention to it would be my view. Um, My last question actually around this area, and, and I definitely want to just touch on some of the super rugby stuff we've seen is like, what ways would you make account? I hate the word accountable. I'm gonna. I just think you know. My bias is people take responsibility. Um, yes. um, I think we're saying the same thing. What creative ways would you be? Can you? Did you use to you know for accountability essentially? Um, something made as as real time feedback is is really good. So like you might have been um, you know live GPS in a session. You're educated, you know, you come off, you look at it, and if you're below average for your position, you quickly get back out and you do a bit of a top-up. That's nothing amazing. Everyone's doing that. Um, gym Awares, which is a, a, a power rate meter, you'd say, that you use in the gym. So there's no point, Rusty, you and I are being competitive all the time because you'll know and I'll know that one of us is going to be more powerful than the other because we've just got that gift. So <laughs> after a while, <laughs> that competition gets a bit stale, you know. So what happens then is I just hold you accountable against yourself or, as you say, responsible is you've got your own trophies up there that you've achieved and you might be in say a, a third squat where we're trying to get forced through you know 85 percent load whatever it might be but you're seeing are you close to your score are you 10 percent off 12 percent off one percent off are you three percent better you know so what what guys are getting is just real-time feedback and there's there's a pretty big study that's just come out um, recently that shows that you know all your gains in performance if you're looking at sprints and jump performance if people are getting objective feedback during the session, such as, you know, um, power data, speed data, you know, instant feedback on times, they, they get greater results because, you know, they're being hungry for it. So accountability, mate, um, as you say, it's a strong word. And I think, as you say, it's responsible for your own training, but then it's also competitive. So if you have, if you have um, the fact that if you want to be the best and you can see you're the third best or fourth best in your position, if you're really going to be the best player, you're going to be hungry. So, so I think if you if you if accountability is done right, it doesn't actually sound like it's a it's a dictatorship. Yeah. What you'd what you'd walk in and see is you'd see a lot of instant feedback, you'd see a lot of hunger and a lot of competition for guys to be not just better than than the guy beside them, but better than themselves. And that was sort of how I sell. I, I guess I try and sell it to the to the player is I know you're not him. I know you might not ever beat his score, but I want you in six months' time to be a whole lot better than you are now. And these are the numbers that are going to show us that you know. So you sort of create that that direction and responsibility easily tying it back to performance, you know, around something about that. So, yeah. Nice. And uh, when I chat with uh, Shane Fletcher at the Crusaders, he spoke about them coaching, uh, almost like coaching efforts, not fitness. And some of the stuff you've spoken about is exactly that, make it competitive. Probably, you know, competing with yourself as well. Often, you know, if I see the the props doing a, 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 you know, a a Bronco with the the outside backs and, you know, getting killed, it's, it's often not that helpful for them. And then the other thing that I, 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 
that I'm hearing throughout, and I, and I just, I guess I want to reiterate, if you were doing this same thing with South Africa going into the World Cup, you would do it differently. You would look at their context, their culture, their identity, how they want to play the game, and you might not measure the same stuff. So you're not saying, right, everyone needs to measure this stuff. You're going, look, in our context, this is what was going to lead to performance. 100%, mate, yeah. And, and you know, if you sat, first and foremost, it would be with the coach again, you know, right back to our very first thing is, you know, um, the coach is the reason you're there. You know, they're there because people believe in them to deliver what they need to believe. And, uh, you know, you, you have to be 100% aligned to that. And um, and the more understanding you have of that, you know, you can execute your own role. So, yeah, if, if we were to be with South Africa and it was, they would have a different kick to ruck ratio or they wanted to slow the ball down, um, they wanted to work things, then yes, you would look at having your, your athletes conditioned in a different way. And, you know, you might you might change your, your force ratio a little bit. So, like, you know, if I've got a prop that's, you know, giving away 10, 12 kilos on his opposite, you want him to be an amazing mover because he's not going to outmuscle the other guy based on pure physics. But if I've got that guy that's there, then you want him to be able to make sure that, you know, you, you play to your strengths, I guess, and, and your weaknesses. And I'm, I'm not overly a, you know, position-specific trainer. Um, I've mentioned it time again, is, is the basics done really well. So be fit, be strong, you know, and, and 2 to 3% of the magic that you need to be a prop or to be a great winger, that then comes, you know, once you've, you've developed that. So I don't think I'd ever lose that part, Rusty. I think, mate, like, you know, anyone that gets Jonesy, I think we're any S&C to come in, to be fair. And, and um, you're going to come in and that's what you're going to make sure you've got for a start. And it's whether you do that with a reverse periodization model without getting too carried away. It's whether if you've got a short pre-season or a massively long season, you might not have time to do the old-fashioned linear programming and spend a heap of time on the squat rack without worrying about performance, et cetera. So you might have to, to gauge that over time. But the key thing you want your guys to be able to do is be robust and resilient because if they're not on the training field, you know, they can't execute. So whether it's South Africa, Fiji, the All Blacks, whatever, I think you know, we're all after the same thing. Players have to be able to tolerate training load. And if they need more training, you know, they need to have a higher tolerance. And that's, that's where we had to go with Japan. Our set piece wasn't as good. Our combat ability wasn't as good. So we need to do more of that. So first and foremost, we had to get them more resilient to take more of that on, on the chin. Nice. Uh, Super Rugby, Otteroa, the latest stuff. What's, what's your reflections? You've just done a, the, the review. I spoke to someone at the Chiefs who'd done their review as well, and, 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 and it sounds like it's a pretty robust process. Um, what are your reflections on the competition? What are you thinking about now? Um, reflections on the competition? Um, if I was to be, a, to be an S&C geek um, that does a little bit of data, like uh, a lot of our metrics were up. So our volumes, our volumes of everything were higher. The actual work rates themselves were pretty similar to when we were playing in the original Super Rugby 2020, so against South African and Australian Argentinian teams. Um, so the work rates were about the same, but volumes higher. So total distance, total high-speed meters, total accelerations, total amount of efforts, everything was up. So the fact that the ratio was the same with higher volumes straight away they were they were like the load the load um impact on the players was was a lot higher um our contact rates mate were, were pretty full-on as well so that was the one notice from comparison of the six games where we'd been pretty poor in super rugby originally and then with super rugby Aotearoa, that was that was the snc side of it mate but just just love being back playing rugby i think like everyone the COVID lockdown um you had to be creative in how you got guys on board, how you made sure they're coming back fit because you only had sort of three weeks to turn them around into the competition. But I think for us, our team personally gained a lot of mental resilience and actually grew a lot through COVID. We had a, a pretty young side overall. 
And when we came back in, the guys were in, in the same level of nick running-wise that they were prior to, um, or sorry, just after pre-season, you know, in the original season, we would, you know, probably be at our fittest. So that really helped. Um, but, mate, we just loved playing rugby because we realised the privilege that it was. Um, we themed probably some of the best theming I've ever seen from the coaches this year. So um, they, they aligned with their leaders and we used a different fight each week um, for our group of players. A, a season-long theme was not really going to work for them. So apart from our theme being, it was around a different fight each week. Really loved it, mate. Each week you come in, it could have been Foreman Ali, it could have been McGregor Diaz, it could have been, um, you know, any any number. We used uh, Adesanya in the MMA as well. And what we would do is the coaches did an amazing job with the leaders of each week setting up a new fight that replicated a game that was the following weekend. And and all our preparation and structures were aligned to, you know, what that person did. So, you know, Rumble in the Jungle, everyone sort of thought that Ali just sort of outfitnessed him. Well, he didn't, you know, he kept deflecting his left and holding his head in, you know, and he had lots of little strategies he did. So we actually probably pulled back on the rugby content, showed a bit more detail around how people prepared, did things differently, you know, how did they go from an underdog to beating a team? And, mate, it was an amazing, uh, amazing theming. Some of the best I've seen in, in a lot of teams. And, and, mate, really enjoyed myself every Monday coming in with excitement around, holy <laughs> yeah, shit. that's cool. And that was, that was something we needed, Rusty. So we sort of felt that as a team pre, pre-COVID, our guys were training well. They were young. They were putting in the hard yards. But we just don't know if they were really excited to play. And we actually don't know if they wanted to go out and do that. So we had to be pretty hard on ourselves as a as coaches and look at our environment in terms of overall load, how we were presenting things and the changes um, as a coaching staff we made, I think mate, did obviously replicate into our performances. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we had a really competitive um, competitive competition and, and mate, just, yeah, just loved, just loved being back out there and, and putting it in week out, week in. I love, um, Razor said that on the pod, like, it's my responsibility if the week isn't exciting. And I'm thinking... I wonder how many coaches are thinking like that. They're looking at the players going, oh, they, you know, they look a bit down there. I'm thinking it might be because, I mean, I love the fact that as a, as a member of the coaching staff, you were really excited about coming in. Oh, mate, it was, it was awesome. And as I say, like, um, so, so um, Aaron Major, head coach and, and Brownie assistant and our analysts, again, you know, putting together this great video content and the way the leaders would, would combine in it. Um, mate, it just worked really well for our group of guys. Each week was fresh. It was new. It was an exciting new fight, mate. So our gym, our gym was themed, you know, we'd dress up like Bison Fury and, you know, it was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Boxing kid and, and some of our gym sessions would have a, generally a theme song that would thrash every team meeting and sometimes in the gym. And it just brought a really good energy each week that was slightly different. And it just helped the guys buy into that theme, you know, in the weekend. And a couple of cool little things around, you know, the man of the match was presented to the gloves, everyone signed, created a game. And, you know, we, we really had it from um, not just the start of the week right through to the game and post-match, you know, all related. And that was pretty cool. Um, and, mate, but just just playing, you know, like uh, everyone's been through it. There were so many changes into what it was going to be. You know, no stadiums, different staff, flying on the day, chartered planes, your own private buses, no accommodation, up and back on the day to, mate, you know, we, we started playing with crowds there for a while. So it was pretty unreal. Nice rock stars in your own private planes, eh? Oh, it, was, it was a bit going to be that way, mate. But no, we were... I would humble mate back on the commercial flights with everybody else. So it was, uh, it was okay. Nice. I, um, something you just referenced there was like, so how do you see like the mental skills fitting into what you do? So you reference kind of people came back, you know, perhaps a little bit more resilient and how do you see that as part of your kind of day to day? What are you, what are you considering? I, I think, um, you know, mental skills is absolutely huge and it's whether you talk about some of the big, basic rocks around is it like you know a resilience you know 
um, a robustness of character, but even down to the, some of the small things of, you know, do you understand performance preparation? Most of you probably think it's a warm up and a stretch, but, you know, are they visualizing? Are they thinking about their role? Are they studying their moves off that? And as coaches, we all have a role to play, um, whether you have a mental skills coach on board or not. If you have a mental skills coach, obviously you work with them and their themes, which is fantastic because it makes your job easier. Um, but if you don't have one on board and on your staff, then mate, it's, it's around, you know, how do you grow that in your area? And, and so pre-season's a great time just to, you know, to build resilience and robustness. And, and if a guy can't hold himself accountable to a basic metric on a watt bike and, you know, stay switched on in a, in a gym session where there's not a lot of thinking, you know, despite it being fun and you have it at the right times, you know, how are they then going to execute out there? So, again, keeping everything related to the footy field and, and relevant, but making sure the guys are obviously in an enjoyable environment, but they realise every, every opportunity is a chance for learning. And, and one of our key themes, mate, is we generally start our week on a Monday with a gym session. And it's kind of like, boys, this, this sets you up for the week. Your mentality in this session sets you up for the rest of the week. So, you know, let's make sure we do it right. And, and then I think, mate, yeah, the, the growth that comes with um, losing, having to be reflective and self-reflective, and it's very easy to give feedback. And I think as any profession, we're always given um, great coaching on how to give amazing feedback, but very few people are ever told how to, how to take it, you know. And everyone's told, I remember, it's, it's, it's performance-orientated, not you as a person, but when someone comes and tells you, hey, you know, yeah. you're doing shit and you lost us the game of the weekend or this is poor, you know, it's actually making sure people know the next steps, I believe, after that. And that's, you know, that's the challenge of where, you know, getting them back focused onto the next task, making sure that they're performing well, you know, rather than dwelling in that. So, mate, um, you know, definitely staying in your lane. But I think if you're aware of, aware of your team um, and you're talking with your players, you know, you can, you can, without being a mental skills coach, for instance, negative self-talk, Rusty, if every time you're on the rack, you're like, oh, mate, don't think I can shift that, or you're always sort of giving me a bit of a negative vibe, a simple reflection on me saying, hey, Rusty, you realise, mate, most of the conversations we have is, you know, you tell me how sore you are, or your body language is usually pretty poor, and then you're always sort of telling me, oh, like, I'm a bit stiff, I don't think I can do that. Everyone else sees that too, and sometimes a, a simple conversation, as much as that to a guy, helps them with a little bit of self-awareness, maybe. And then, you know, and then you start saying, so, hey, our focus in the gym is just no negative self-talk or just want you to be a bit more conscious around your first, first conversation with me all the time is, oh, I don't think I can do this or I need to change. And something as basic as that, you're not stepping out of your lane, but like I had really good success with a couple of guys this year with what they call dodgy knees and, and they were, I can't do this, I don't do this and I don't do that. And I sort of joked and said, well, the first thing you don't do is come and tell me what you can't do because there's always something we can do, you know? So straight away, guys start changing their mindset of, oh, there's jumping here, I can't do that, is, oh, what's my variation? Or how many reps of this do you want me to do instead of the full load? So things like that, mate, I think, where you develop a professional understanding, but you can also drive the areas, you know, is, that's just in my small little bubble, but you can align with nutritionists and you can start helping them to counsel and educate the guys around, you know, things that relate to your performance. And you sit down with the coach and he's having a prop on around his work right around the field and you're sitting in that meeting talking in the same language you know, those, those things there actually help in that mental space around, you know, visualisation, language, understanding and things as well. Nice. So your S&C lane is quite wide, would be my view, and, it's, uh, and rightly so. And I'm sure, once again, this will be something that, as people listen, especially, I think as we, you know, the chapters in your book, you, you, probably, you, you probably weren't as mindful of, of this when you started. And I would love you to come and help me with my dodgy knee, by the way, because there's loads of exercises. I've probably been worse than a drunk driver, mate. I've, I've getting out of my lane too often in my career. And 
to be honest, most of the time it's, it's been with good intention. But again, uh, if I went back to that scenario with um, starting with the Sunwolves in Japan, as I sort of got lost in the enormity of the role, I was probably trying to assist assist a lot of people in the environment to make change and to grow. And, you know, so I was probably trying to converse too much with medical and I was probably trying to assist, you know, a young management team with the logistics and planning a little bit too much and, and got away from really what I should have been focusing on. And as we know, that whole um, interdisciplinary approach, you know, um, all working together has to work to, to be there. So, you know, at the time my intention was good, but really what I should have been doing was, as you say, mate, staying in that one lane with the bunkers on and, and nailing that first and foremost, really. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, just, I mean, you spoke about feedback and I agree with you, like, uh, you know, how many people have, you know, had training on giving feedback? It's not that many. How many people have had some support on receiving it? Can you think of some moments when you received it and it wasn't that helpful and you you, you actually didn't have the skills to, to deal with it is pretty common. Um, talk to me about, so you guys just gone through the review without going into too much detail on the review, like, What's that process like for, for you as coaches? So if I'm correct, so New Zealand Rugby review or do a review alongside the franchises? Yep, yep. So, uh, mate, I'm, I'm, I guess, a little bit immune to, to the New Zealand rugby side, but, yep, New Zealand rugby certainly review the, the, the rugby coaches um, as well as the team. So, mate, uh, our particular process here at the Highlanders is uh, every player is um, interviewed and, and completes a survey. And within that, they uh, mark every support service coach, et cetera, on um it's a, it's a one to ten scale but they also then obviously have to give feedback to support that answer uh and then the crux of it mate is is you get a summary of that information so for instance you have your score from the other management and you have the score from all the players and so you can sort of see well you know are they are they both aligned is one a bit higher than the other why would that be and then what's happened is they don't specifically say simon jones your feedback was but they do list all the feedback given to players both positive and negative so it's very easy to go through and scan that and go, well, that would relate to my area. That's relating to my area. So I really enjoy that because um, for me, mate, first year, first year in this environment, you know, first year back in with the Highlanders, um, arrived back from the World Cup, had about a week off, mate, to get out of the country. And then boom, I was back here and planning and into it. So you have to sort of go with what you know you're good at. And yeah, you didn't have a lot of time to set up. So you sort of had to just trust and, and ask a few other people for trust around how a few things are going to go. So you know, your assistant staff, your nutritionist, your coaching team, because you just didn't have time. Whereas what's great now is you've been working for a year, you're learning on the go, going, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to do that different next year. Um, this is going really well, I need to modify that. But you start getting, you know, really good um, understanding of, of the players, what they need and how they need it, the staff, um, the levels of which it can all work in. So getting the review for me at the end was great. So, you know, you get your score out of 10, you get through the positive and negative, all the comments, and you can summarise those. And, and hopefully, if you have good self-awareness, you know, you're aware that, yeah, 100%, um, there wasn't enough fun and enjoyment and balance at these particular sessions. There wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't enough accountability or there wasn't enough feedback in this space or the education here needed to be better. Nutrition-wise, we need to do the, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I personally, you know, really, really um, appreciate it. And, and actually, you go and seek it. So if I think there's not enough there, you have to go and probably ask a bit more. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm imagining you're doing this all the time, almost like just noticing and also getting feedback and adapting and iterating and responding to to all of this stuff, really. Did, did you dress as Tyson Fury? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I did, mate, yeah. So a nice little sort of hot point. Tyson Fury. Yeah. So, mate, the, uh, it was quite funny. My, uh, my other essence is a, a beautiful bald bloke like myself, and we both had big beards. So, mate, it was, uh, it was a good day to be Tyson. 
to be fair, but um, probably Rusty, one thing I was, I was going to say there, you say about, you know, you're doing it all the time. You are, and that was probably one thing. Um, I don't have as big a um, performance staff here, you could say, in terms of, you know, how many interns or how many other S&C staff I have. I have one, one full-time staff um, S&C member. And and he's uh, he does a great job, and and we've got a nutritionist who is two days a week this season. So you sort of think about other environments and the the breadth of people you have. But I um I got caught in a lot of meetings, you know, all great planning meetings and good good to be a part of. But part of the review and and just talking with Brownie um, at the moment, just said Brownie, like uh, when we do our coaches meetings, mate, can we just can we put my stuff at the start so we're all aligned on our day and how it's going to work? But when you guys actually start talking about you know your clips that you're going to deliver in your D-strap meeting or you know, you're reviewing some more of your rugby-specific content. Um, can I boost? Because I need to have some conversations with people. Yeah. And that was one thing I I only gave myself, mate, a, a lower score on my performance this year. One, because it was my first year in. But two, my learning through myself through COVID was talking to the leaders wasn't enough. I needed to be in front of the, you know, the first years. I needed to be in front of guys in different positions. I needed to be about more. And I was about, but I was always busy. You know, I was always in the on. I was always doing things. So... You know, a key reflection, as you say, is it's not actually always having it formalised. Your best time is when it's not formal. You know, the guy comes out of the rack or he's warming up and putting his boots on or you're, you're walking to the training field together, you know, grabbing his GPS unit out. Those are the times where you really, your, your goal comes from. And so what I've been looking at is how can I restructure my week, um, mine and Blakey's time, my S&C, um, how, can, how can we be better? So actually we've got a few more conversations with guys. So we run amazing wellness program. We get great data, you know, physio screens. We, we've got a really good program that way. So the data's in front of us, but I don't want the data. I want the conversation with the data as a, as a backup. So, you know, I think we did all right. Um, but for me personally, bigger, big reflection is I want to I make sure that I actually structure the week in, in my workload so those can be had, especially at the start of the week, you know, when you're playing and you want to get a bit more of an in-depth feeling around how guys are and how the team is feeling and tracking. Nice. I would call myself a busy fool sometimes, and I'm, you know, you just can't see the wood for the trees, and you're probably not doing the stuff that, that's really, as you described there, that's really impactful, but it doesn't necessarily appear to be impactful because we've got meetings and we've got agendas and stuff to yeah. to get done. Yeah, um, <clears throat> mate, it's been a pleasure. I've loved, uh, I've loved hearing from you again. I've got some warm words for you, if you if you're cool with me doing it. Yeah, no, no worries, Diego. Lots of them are places in the world. So, uh, one word answers. Um, London. Tube or the metro. I thought you were going to say the church or something like that. So, I imagine you were this Kiwi that came over and spent all your time in the church on a fabric, but I moved away from that. New Zealand. Home. Japan. People. Yeah, great people. Such good people. Uh, Highlanders. Um, privilege. Southland. Uh, heart and soul of the home. Well, that's, that's forwards. I've blown, I've blown the game. Sorry, Rusty. You can have, um, have more words, you know. I'm open to that. Uh, rugby. Um, life. Uh, Nepal. Learning. Nice. Uh, coaching. Passion. Uh, and then last and most important one, family. Um, rewarding. Nice. And a big shout out to your wife because 
<clears throat> there'll be a lot of uh, rugby wives out there and sport wives and all kinds of wives who are who are doing those kind of things. It's uh, when lots of us are following our dreams. So uh, if my wife ever listens to the pod, she she can have a shout out as well. She's uh, yeah. she's pretty yeah. good at that. But it's been a pleasure. I mean, genuinely love listening to you talk and. Um, yeah, it'd be cool to maybe catch up with you, you know, after the next season as well, and see what you've been up to. Yeah, no, I'd love, I'd love to, Rusty, and and mate, if I can um, not waffle and, and keep succinct, mate, to what we're chatting about, I'm sure we'll have some good yarns, mate. But uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Um, obviously, met you uh, via a previous, um, what do you say? I guess Zoom meeting that we were having. Um, but mate, I've since then looked at the work you do with the Magic Academy and, and those things, mate, and. Just want to say thank you very much. Love your passion and love your enthusiasm and, and really um, honoured, mate, that you'd, uh, you'd want to have a chat. So thank you very much. Cheers, dude. Have a good one. Awesome. Thanks, man.